Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy, are making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to build, repair, and restore school relationships through restorative practices. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Laura Fitz from Nashville, Tennessee. Based on the broken windows theory, which has recently been called into doubt, zero-tolerance discipline policies in schools became popular in the 1990s. While there's no evidence that zero-tolerance policies actually improve school safety, there is evidence that strongly links suspension and other school discipline to students' failure to graduate. The data also shows that Black students, who make up 18% of the American school population, account for 46% of students receiving multiple suspensions. Combine this with the fact that as many as 95% of suspensions are for nonviolent behaviors that are dependent on staff perceptions, such as accusing students of being disruptive, acting disrespectfully, or committing dress code violations, we can begin to see how a disciplinary policy originally touted to be better for students of color has instead been a direct contributor to the school-to-prison pipeline, not to mention making students of color, particularly Black students, feel unheard and unwelcome in the school system. Rather than continue to wonder why pushing students out of classes doesn't seem to affect any change in behavior, educators like Laura Fitz are challenging this punitive model and replacing it with a restorative justice model that views students as integral parts of classroom communities rather than problems needing to be removed. Despite the fact that Nashville was under a tornado warning, Laura was willing to talk to me in late August. So thank you so much for being willing to to speak with me today and share the amazing things that you're doing. Do you mind just introducing yourself and saying a little bit about who you are and what you do for the listeners? Sure. Thank you for having me, Aviva. I'm Laura Fitz. I have been an English teacher, restorative practices coordinator, and I've facilitated the peace team at a high school in Nashville, Tennessee for the past seven years. And this year I am transitioning into doctoral studies at Peabody, which is part of Vanderbilt. Um, And my emphasis is in race research and justice and looking at how working with students can improve school culture, disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline, and improve teacher preparation programs. All of those sound amazing and very much needed. What was your journey to getting to where you are where this became something of interest to you? The common thread in my journey is that I've just gotten to meet incredible people, mostly students and also people that are doing really transformative work in Nashville and around the country. And I've been able to learn from those people and kind of help facilitate something that has been really beautiful. The specifics of my journey are that I mentioned I started teaching um, at this high school seven years ago. And I naturally had a proclivity toward building relationships. I'm naturally pretty calm. And so I didn't have a lot of the challenging behaviors that many first-year teachers experience just because of, you know, 
cool traits of my personality that kind of lend students to trusting me and feeling safe in my class. But I was still operating under the punitive discipline system of the school. So when there were challenging behaviors in my class and when I was not my best self, which happens a lot when you're a first-year teacher, (laughs) I was reacting in a way that I found that wasn't helpful. So the, the guidelines that had been given to me for how to handle challenging behavior, I would follow, and they weren't working. In fact, they kind of backfired. So if I experienced a student being really disruptive in my class and I issued them a referral, they would experience going to in-school suspension or out-of-school suspension and miss the learning from my class and come back to my class, not only not having learned anything from the experience, but also being understandably upset with me. You know, there was never any personal interaction between myself and that student. I wasn't the one navigating the consequence. I was filling out a form that some administrator was then putting a consequence to. And typically those were punitive exclusionary discipline measures. And I just recognized, you know, pretty quickly that there was a better way to to do this. And so a colleague, Elizabeth Dutton, who teaches in Oakland now, was also teaching at the high school with me, and she invited me to a restorative practices training through IIRP, the International Institute of Restorative Practices. And I went to that training with her and another colleague and just felt like, A, none of the information was new, and B, that the training gave me a really helpful framework to take some of my natural traits and put them into an organized way that I could think about building classroom community so that negative behaviors wouldn't occur and also how to respond to those negative behaviors when they do happen in a restorative problem-solving humanizing way. And so I came back from that training. This is seven years ago, my first year teaching, and I started implementing restorative practices in my classroom with varying degrees of fidelity. Um, I'm still a human. I'm still working to be restorative as much of the time as possible while well, knowing that you know I'm a human and I make mistakes. But I started implementing those measures in my own classroom and got a lot of attention from school leadership and from district personnel because my classroom did just feel different and operate differently. And I didn't have the behavior problems that a lot of teachers had, um, even in classes that were inclusion classes of 37 people. And so With that attention, I kind of got to work with the administration a little bit more, and my colleagues and I proposed to them that we look into becoming a restorative school. This is before anyone had really heard of restorative practices, before it was such a a buzzword. And our administration was really into it, but didn't feel like they had the resources at the time. So I continued in my own classroom. I'm using restorative practices for two more years until I unexpectedly got into a master's program at Peabody and I got off the phone with the program um, advisor and walked down the hall to my principal and said, I can't, you know, say no to this opportunity, but I would like to stay on at the school and coordinate restorative practices here. We've been talking about it for a while. Let's do it. And he said, okay. And I said, I think it's really important that we're doing this work with students, that they're the ones leading it 
could I have a class of students called the peace team that are student leaders and restorative practices? And he said, yes, I need the names by Friday. And it was a Wednesday. (laughs) So I had, it was Wednesday afternoon after school. So I had about 36 hours to recruit for the first year's team. And so it was mostly my former students, along with recommendations from the faculty. I sent out an email asking for recommendations. And that was the beginning of the peace team. It's actually an idea that I thought of in the shower one day. (laughs) And so um, it's been pretty cool to see how this kind of intuitive feeling that we need to be doing this work with students has really grown into a movement in Nashville and blossoming around the country. So could you walk me through what it looks like at your school versus what it would have looked like before? So student A is not having a great day. Maybe they had a fight with their girlfriend. Maybe they didn't have such a great morning with their parents, or maybe there's even more challenging circumstances at work and they act out in class Previously, that would involve a referral to an administrator. What does it look like instead? That's a great question. So I'm going to clarify the limitations here. I'm speaking only from my experience and my own eyeballs. And so other people, you know, may see this differently. But from my experience teaching at our school, just like you said, previously, if a student presented a challenging behavior, they would be cast out pretty quickly. So that could look like stepping into the hallway. There would not be a lot of communication between the student and the teacher other than stop and leave. (laughs) And typically it would end up in a referral that would get sent to an administrator who would then, you know, decide on a punishment. And the punishment options included in-school suspension, out of school suspension, essentially. There were some detention options, but for our population of students, it's really challenging for them to stay after school. So it often led to in-school or out-of-school suspension. Now at our school, our staff has been trained in trauma-informed practices and restorative practices. And so our teachers do a lot on the front end to build classroom culture and prevent problem behaviors from happening. So teachers create agreements with their class. We have posters throughout the school that have expectations for different areas in the school. Um, We have stress balls and um, regulation tools available to all teachers to provide for their students so that if a student's lid is flipped, they have some tools they can use to try to de-escalate by themselves using a regulation tool. Also, teachers are trained in knowing to give students space when they need it and then when they're able to use restorative questions to talk with students. So what happened? What were you thinking about at the time? What do you think about it now? Who is this affected and how? What do you think needs to happen to make this right? And so there's a lot more prevention on the front end and building classroom culture in a variety of ways. But there's also a framework that teachers can use with effective statements, restorative questions, small impromptu conferences, that they can really leverage their humanity and the students' humanity and problem-solving together. We also have a lot more resources at the school. 
So um, actually, as a result of the advocacy of the first year's peace team working with our administration, our school got rid of in-school suspension, and we created a restorative center. So there's a set-apart place in the school that has like really nice lighting and a sandbox and a punching bag and a trampoline and couches and pillows that students can go to to de-escalate and to problem solve, particularly conflicts with teachers or other students. We have a full-time trained restorative practices specialist who is in that room who allows students to de-escalate and co-regulates with them and then helps guide them through the process of problem solving and restoring whatever harm has occurred. And the peace team as a class Like, what does that peace team look like? Yeah, so the peace team is something that is really unique about our school and about what's happening in Nashville. There are a lot of other models of student mediating teams, and there are even some places in restorative hotspots in North America that would say that they have restorative student teams. But from visiting them, the difference is that our model, restorative student leaders, is actually student-led. The other models that I have visited that have been touted as exemplars essentially are using students. Like literally I witnessed the facilitator of a team hand the student a binder and they followed a script to mediate a conflict between two other students. So I think there's great, and that's, that's great, right? There's great models of teen court of teen mediating teams, but the difference with restorative student leaders and the peace team is that it's student-led and it's through a YPAR model. So YPAR, Youth Participatory Action Research, is an epistemology developed by Camerota and Fine, and it essentially says that students will research social problems affecting their lives and then design solutions to those problems. So in terms of restorative student leaders, of which Peace Team is a part, that's the name of a particular team, our students research the social problems they see around them and then design and actually enact the solutions to those problems. And it's student-led. No teacher is telling students what to do. Students are the ones electing what problems they want to tackle and how they tackle them. So YPAR is the framework Restorative practices is the method, and student leadership is the guiding principle. Teens being teens, there's going to be conflict even within the peace team. Yes. As this model has continued, like how do how do they self-regulate when they see their fellow peace teamers not following social norms that they've established? Yeah, and how do I self-regulate when I mess up and I cause harm to a member or to the team? I'm thinking of two things right now and an answer to that question. One is that so I'm currently kind of in transition of being the facilitator for the peace team and handing it off to a new facilitator who's phenomenal. And I've gotten to participate in some of their virtual classes. And so currently I literally just got off the Zoom with the peace team 15 minutes ago. And they have created values. So they're team values. They've created agreements for how they're going to live out those values. And then they also created what happens if they break the agreements. And this is all student created. So I I did not suggest any of this. 
The other facilitator did not suggest any of this. We just guided the process for them to create their values and agreements. And then also what happens if someone breaks an agreement this year, they also created virtual agreements for themselves for participating in zoom class sessions and for completing asynchronous work. And so I I first would want to say that we guide the students and they work together to create a, a shared understanding of what they want the team to look like, understanding that we will mess up and here's what's going to happen if we mess up. So we kind of like plan for that on the front end. The second thing I was thinking of is I said something, I think that was taken harmfully in a session with a peace team member yesterday. (laughs) So I did something that was harmful and I have next to me a list with that person's name on it. And I intend to call that person up and apologize and use the restorative questions to try to figure out what was happening from their perspective and how I can make right what occurred. But in the four years of peace team, we've had peace team members um, in conflict with other folks in the school and they've participated in restorative conferences. Often students want to be on the peace team because they've participated in a restorative conference led by a peace team member previously. Um, That's how they hear about us and they just love that experience and that's what brings them to want to apply. We've had conflicts in the peace team. I just mentioned that I mess up too. So all of us are human and I'm just really grateful that we have this shared understanding of ways that we can leverage our humanity and being a close knit community and in repairing harm when it occurs. And so you called yourself and your colleague facilitators, but I imagine that your, you know, official title is teacher. Is that deliberate to, to change the language of how you refer to yourselves in relationship to the students you're working with? Yes, absolutely. I consistently refer to myself as a facilitator of the peace team since it started, but I've also changed the language when I was teaching English. I mean, it, in a lot of ways, getting to work with the peace team transformed my own experience as a classroom English teacher. And so I changed my language of being an English facilitator and facilitating classes instead of teaching them. So that shift, it's just been like such a lucky journey for me to get to learn with and from students and to see that impact my practice inside and outside of working with restorative student leaders. So I talked uh, recently in one of the recent episodes to be released was about trauma-informed teaching with Emily Santiago. And she talked about the fact that she was working with restorative practices in in a school that had been identified as having, you know, a, a lot of social issues. And it was great, but she found herself retraining new teachers every year. There'd be a turnover of like a third of the staff who felt like perhaps this was an overwhelming model to be working in. How do you prevent that burnout? Because it seems like you need yourself to be very vulnerable. You need to be willing to see students in vulnerable states. There's a lot of emotional labor involved. How do you make sure that that's a tenable model to continue over time? I wish I had a perfect answer to that question. We certainly need it. I also work in a school that has a really high turnover rate. I wouldn't feel comfortable saying it's 
just because of our model. I think there's a lot of reasons that contribute to that. But I do think, at least when I was trained of trauma-informed teaching, the first thing that was emphasized to us is self-care. And so when we rolled out trauma-informed practices to our staff, that was our first emphasis was self-care. Our first trainings were about understanding our own experiences and coming up with a plan of how we can take care of ourselves. That was several years ago. And, and since then, even in trainings I've done subsequently for a variety of different things, I find myself like really emphasizing self-care because I know how important it is for me <laughs> and my longevity and staying in this work. And I think we really can't overemphasize that enough. And one thing I, I tend to say is like, I wish I knew what self-care needs to look like for you. I'm still trying to figure that out for me. I think that's one hard thing is there's, you know, restorative practices, trauma-informed practices, self-care. There's, it's not a program that you can upload and press play. It's not like a formula that you can follow. It's really humanizing and it's challenging and it's hard and it's so good and so important. And I think just as teachers, we don't often get the space to think about what we need and what self-care looks like for us. Has the restorative model been ported into intercollegiate interactions? Because I'm, I'm thinking that sometimes in my experience that it's teacher-to-teacher teacher harm can be more stressful for a lot of staff members than it, you know, conflict with students has ever been. For sure, is the quick answer to your question. Yes, we've had several conferences at our school, obviously many between student and student and student and teacher, but also several between teacher and teacher, teacher and administrator, teacher and other staff person, because that we're all human, right? And we work in a high-stress environment, so it makes sense that we would you know, say harmful things to each other and, and need to address that. I will say that it is... From my, again, my limited experience from my eyeballs, I have noticed that adults tend to have, from my perspective, a harder time setting aside their pride and working through a problem than youth do. I have never had a youth conference where a student has walked out and refused to participate. I have had an adult conference where an adult staff member walked out and refused to participate. And this is me just, you know, being brutally honest with you, because I think that's what we deserve to be with each other. I don't think anyone who's ever worked with adults would challenge you on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it was unpleasantly surprising, but not shocking. Um, and I think it just goes back to self-care. You know, teachers are humans who have had a variety of experiences, and all of them are valid. And I don't think we can, I think blaming teachers or blaming anyone for that matter for their challenging behaviors is really counterproductive. So I don't think it ever should be like making fun or making light of the, the harm that teachers can internalize and therefore have a really hard time participating. And I think it just speaks to how important this is. You know, if all of us had gotten to express our full humanity in K through 12 and, and further, then how much better would our society be? And how important is it, particularly considering the current climate and attention that we're in to recognize ourselves in our full humanity and to build community with each other 
and when we mess up to have a way that we can repair that harm. How do you bring this model to parents and what kind of reactions do you get and how do you end up getting them onto your side? I'm sorry, I'm assuming that they maybe aren't on your side to begin with, which might be a faulty assumption. Man, there's so many things to unpack there. And I want to be the first to admit that I certainly have not figured out the best way to partner with parents, particularly parents from immigrant backgrounds that make up the majority of the school that I've worked with. I I do think though, this is just kind of like my advice for myself from experiences with families in general, that just like building community with your classroom, you have to build community with families. So the first call a family gets from you should not be about something negative. Um, You know, I busted my, you know what, to call every single family the first week of school and introduce myself and offer my email and contact information. I learned from another colleague to do something called family homework, where you invite families to send you, uh, there's a variety of options, but essentially brag about their kid to you and, and give you suggestions and ideas about their kids and to send weekly emails to keep families updated and involved and really cultivate this sense of togetherness and working together. Those are just things that I've found that have been helpful, but there's there's so many things that I still need to work through of how to make sure that those are all getting translated into the language that families need to read in, how to make sure it's accessible for families that are not literate in any language, and how to really communicate the purpose of this community building with family members. I think I personally could be a lot more explicit in why I'm doing what I'm doing with families instead of being implicit and just doing the thing (laughs) and not exactly explaining why I'm doing it. But I think there's a lot we can do to build community with families and build trust. And I think also I'm a white female educator and for a lot of students and for a lot of families, I represent a face that has been harmful to them in the past. And I think it's really important to recognize that schools for many folks have been places of inhospitality and of bad experiences and even of trauma. And so I'm not a parent, but I can imagine if I were a parent or caregiver and if I had a negative experience in school, And if I received the very clear message that the school was not for me, it was not designed for me, it was not there for me, that it would be really hard for me to want to engage in school. And I also just want to do a quick side note about what engagement means, because I think oftentimes we think of engagement through um, a particular lens, maybe through how we are engaged with our own children's schools, how our parents were engaged how white culture tends to dictate what parent engagement looks like. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that the parent or caregiver that's working three jobs to make sure their kid has the lights on at home is also engaged in school. It may not be the way that we see or the way that we value and honor parent engagement, but I think it would be really good to broaden our lens of what that engagement means. That was just general thoughts about family engagement, which I still would love to learn more about. But I think in terms of my experience with families with restorative practices, 
I'll give kind of a general statement and then give an example. I have found families to really, really appreciate the restorative process and especially when they get to be involved in it. So whether that is being involved in a conference with their student and a teacher, whether that's being involved in a conference that's between students or between students and admin, um, or all three students, admin and teachers, all of these things I've facilitated, I have found that families obviously love their kids and love being involved and they are the experts on their kid, right? So why would we not include family members and problem solving and supporting kids? The example I wanted to give was from my first year coordinating and there had been a series of fights between three female students. Two of them were sisters and then there was another student And the fights had escalated so badly that the family members were calling each other in threats. They had pulled up in front of each other's houses with guns. There was a suit filed against one family from the other family. So just a lot of tension that was both at school and had bled over into literally into the families outside of school. And one of the students was facing expulsion And that might have had some ramifications for her documentation status. She was trying to get DACA. And so it was a pretty serious situation. And when we did a lot of pre-work for this, both families spoke only Spanish. I speak Spanish. That was lucky. But I did a lot of pre-work for weeks preparing the three students and their family members for the conference. But when we got into the conference... I mean, just watching people's body language is so fascinating. Like people started off with their arms crossed and sitting back in the chair and, you know, being pretty reluctant to participate. But by the end of the conference, people were leaning forward, nodding open body posture to each other. And they ended up realizing after the conference that they were from the same city in Central America. And the moms gave each other hugs and shared contact information. Oh, that gives me chills. I know, I know. It really does seem kind of like unbelievable, but this is a completely true story. And the girls, you know, were not best friends after, that's for sure. But they had no further incidents. They One ended up not graduating. She ended up um, needing to work for her family. But the rest, the other two graduated. And um, as far as I know, all are doing well. Um, they're, they've now all left the school, either graduating or choosing to work. And it was a really beautiful moment to recognize that when we, you know, sit down and talk things through and and really hear each other out and feel heard ourselves, there's this possibility of not just fixing the immediate problem, but also building bridges between families that were opposed to each other. You know, they shared contact info. It was like, if there's ever any issues, let me know. We'll work on it together. The girls, the students, excuse me, all signed agreements for, you know, what they were going to do moving forward. And it's not like they ended up all being straight A students or anything, or even that that's like a measure of success, but they did solve the problem and they were all able to stay in school and to be in that community, at least respectfully with each other. Is there a place for a police resource officer, which I understand many school districts, they pay the police to offer an officer into the school, but like, can you have restorative justice processes in a space where you also have police officers? My opinion is yes. 
I think you can operate restoratively in an unrestorative system, at least to a certain extent. I mean, I think I did for a while (laughs) personally. Um, And then as a school, I think we're operating restoratively in a district that has room for restorative practices, but isn't explicitly creating restorative frameworks. I actually was just on a call with an amazing student group in Nashville called Safer Schools Nashville. That's a compilation of alumni and current students that's working to defund SROs and reallocate those funds for things like trauma-informed and restorative practices. And I'll tell you what I told them. I, I, I think it can be harmful for many students just to have an SRO in the building. So I want to acknowledge that first. Second, I personally have not seen the um, overuse of force and profiling that have occurred at other places at the school I worked at. But three, in my opinion, I think the biggest issue is administrators (laughs) getting frustrated and not knowing how to handle a situation and using SROs as their enforcement method. And I think that's deeply problematic for a lot of reasons. That's my honest opinion. I, I'm not, for me, that isn't the biggest issue that I'm fighting, but I support it. And I certainly think that those funds could be used in a more productive way. So a teacher is listening to this and maybe they recognize the punitive system that you're describing, or maybe they're not in as punitive a system, but they still recognize that it is more deficit-based and there's not a lot of restitution, what should they do to get started on this journey of exploration of the restorative justice practices? Are there resources they should check out or workshops they should do? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I just had like 17 book titles fly through my head when you asked this question. I'll try to limit them. You can also send me as big a list as you want, and I can put uh, I can put that on the website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would definitely do that. I, I think my first question for a teacher who this is a teacher who's like interested, right? Mm-hmm. Not who's resistant. Okay, who's interested? I would first say um, welcome. That this is a lifelong journey that we're never going to get to the end to. We're just going to, you know, hopefully get better bit by bit. And I'm right there with you in that. Um, and I would, I would also suggest a couple texts that these are really transformative for me. So the first text that I read that was really helpful for me to understand like what's happened in our country and, and kind of ramifications for teaching um, is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which is a, she's brilliant and powerful and amazing. And the book is also those things. And it's also very wrecking and challenging to read. 13th is a documentary on Netflix that is similarly wrecking and informative of things that I was just completely unaware of until I watched it. So I would recommend The New Jim Crow and 13th. Um, as starting places. The best book I read on restorative practices is Changing Lenses, Restorative Justice for Our Times by Howard Zayer. Um, I want to do a big asterisk here to say that Howard Zayer is known as like the father of restorative practices in North America, but I want to like three stars next to this. 
restorative practices was not invented by white people. These are indigenous practices that have existed from literally the beginning of time um, that we've kind of fallen away from as a society. And so really a turn to restorative practices is a return to the practices that our ancestors had for long, long, long time before we've been here. But I do think that book by Zaire is really good. Most helpful book I've ever read for education is by Dr. Bettina Love, who's a total badass. And her book is called We Want to Do More Than Survive. And it's about abolitionist teaching. And so I would highly recommend that book. It is so, so helpful. Um, And I'll send you a list of others. I'm an English teacher and a grad student and I could read forever. So I'm happy to send you that list. And I just would want to encourage anyone who is listening and who's interested that the journey is really challenging. It can be really like personally challenging to recognize, at least for me, it's been really challenging to recognize ways that I've contributed to harm to students and ways that I could have been better, but it's so rewarding. I get no more joy than I do when I'm working with students and I can feel their energy and I have so much hope for the future because our students are in it. And I think getting to do things with students and being restorative and working together is one of the most powerful things we can do as educators. Quick plug for the Peace Team Instagram account. It's student runs. You get to see students and what they put up there. <laughs> it's Glencliff, G-L-E-N-C-L-I-F-F, Peace Team on Instagram. Awesome. Well, I found this to be a really enlightening conversation and I'm really impressed and optimistic about the future that this is something that's going on in in 2020 because there's not a lot of really good news coming out of this year. So thank you so much for being willing to talk to me and talk to the listeners and, and offer up that book list. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. More details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at LessonImpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.